Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. favorite in New York is Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. I make no no, no bones about it. Uh, Mike is uh, not only a great writer, but he has a good sense for what it's all about. And we're going to talk to Mike Vaccaro next as we move along on Howard David Live. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple. Hey, Howard. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with the great Mike Vaccaro. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great, Howard. How are you doing? I can't complain. Nobody cares, you know. I care. No, no, no. I mean, I care. I, I care deeply. I do. I care. I want to know how you're doing. No, I'm doing. I know. I appreciate that. But I'm thinking back <laughs> to that. I'm thinking back to Chaz Palminteri in the Bronx Tale, when he says oh, to. Yeah, I know. I, I knew where that. I, I knew where you were going. Yeah, and he says to Cologelo, uh that uh, you know nobody cares, but you know you're right. Uh, people care. Islander fans care. What they did last night was, I rarely have seen a team get their butts beat in eight to nothing. And come back and show the resolve to to win a game in overtime. Well, it really is kind of a hallmark of what the Islanders have been this year. I mean, they've been through a lot. They lost their captain, you know, midway through the season, Anders Lee, and you know they they, they were behind in the first two playoff series, also two to two games to one. Came storming back. Now, obviously, eight nothing is eight nothing, and I mean that was just your average eight nothing game. That game could have been twenty nothing if the Lightning wanted it to be. It was a complete slaughter. But uh, you know, look, I mean, I you know. I was at the Coliseum last night, and, 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 you know, I knew from the moment people started to show up, it was going to be a lot different narrative. I didn't necessarily think the Islanders, you know, had in the bag to win the game. And certainly when they were down 2 nothing, it looked pretty, you know, pretty grim and ominous. Uh, but uh, that place was electric. And, you know, you, you know how playoff hockey can be, Howard. I mean, sometimes the combination of a feisty team and a loud crowd can really, you know, do some magical things. And I think we saw that last night. The uh, the intensity of playoff hockey, I think, is unmatched. And I'm not saying that it's more intense than the NBA or more intense than the World Series or, or or in the NFL or the Super Bowl. But playoff hockey, for some reason, just impresses me as being incredibly intense, obviously very physical. And the way that they're moving on their skates, I mean, it's like a train wreck night in and night out. Well, you know, the thing about hockey uh, that, that I've discovered through the years and that you know, I, unfortunately, I don't get a chance to cover hockey as much as I do the other three major sports. But, you know, whenever I can, I do try and dip my toe in the water with hockey because I do like the sport a lot. But the thing about, you know, hockey, I mean, you know, think about the culture. I mean, most of your, most of those players, even the best players in the world, if you told them, you know what, we're going to play for a keg of beer in a frozen pond someplace in Saskatchewan, they'd all be like, I'm in. And they'd play that game like it was game seven in the cup finals. And so it, it only makes sense that when you actually have real stakes in the table like you did last night, like you do in the entirety of the Stanley Cup playoffs, that that intensity, which is just a part of who they are, it's part of their DNA, that it gets ratcheted, that it gets ratcheted up, which is the reason why 
you know, so often at the end of these like blowout games or one-sided games, you, you, know, you see 10, 15 fights because, you know, these guys put their entire being into these games. Um, and, and I don't mean to make that sound unfair to other athletes in other sports. It's just different. You just don't see it in baseball. Baseball is, is a placid game compared to hockey and even basketball. It's a, it's a highly skilled game that, you know, if you, if you play a basketball game like a hockey game, I mean, guys would be dead on their feet by halftime. You just, you just can't do it. And so I think that's what makes hockey so unique. So Anthony Bouvier is running for mayor of Long Island. Is that right? Well, I think he went unanimously if he ran this morning. I'll tell you what. Um, he, uh, I mean, you know, it's a great story. One of the great things about this team, Howard, is that there's like, you know, on any given night in his playoffs, I mean, another guy, you know, steps up and says, I'm going to be the hero tonight. And it was Bavillier's turn. He was due. He'd been 10 games without a goal. Uh, he's just one of the most reliable performers they usually have during the course of the regular season. And, uh, you know, he took advantage of, of a moment. You know, he, he said afterward that it felt like he blacked out. And I think that he was almost joined by about 13,000 people who didn't quite know exactly how to channel their joy. So they started throwing their beer cans on the ice and in, a, in a show, of, in a show of, of joy, which is kind of a curious choice. But, uh, but uh, you know, just, you know in, in, the moment it's, in the moment, it actually seemed perfectly plausible. You know as well as I that you don't win unless you get good goaltending. And goaltending last night, I mean, you got 22 stops out of 24 shots. Uh, that's going to keep you in a lot of games. It is. And, you know, look, he, he was pulled in game five, gave up three goals, two of which were just fluky. You know, sometimes, as much as I love hockey, I mean, you know, half the goals that are scored a lot of times just seem like complete fluky, you know, you know, lucky bounce jobs. But, you know, it was smart to take him out. There was, there was no way the Islanders were going to recover uh, down 3 nothing. You just see that was a game that was going to belong to the Lightning, and it was just best to – to get him out of the line of fire, which I thought was a great coaching move by Barry Trotz. Um, and you know what? It, 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 it paid dividends. I mean, the uh, the three goals obviously caused the Coliseum last night to explode the loudest. But there were four or five other times when Marmalade made a stop, you know, made a stopping goal that really seemed to take the crowd's breath away and, and really kind of, I, I thought, kind of energized not just the, the crowd but the team as well. Taking a bite of the Big Apple as Mike Vaccaro saw the Islander game last night. And, you know, there was, I saw in interviews last night with some fans as they were leaving the Coliseum, uh, you know, maybe this is the last game that's played at the, at the Big Barn and maybe not. And the fans were saying, oh, no, 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 there's going to be more. But when you haven't won a title in 38 years, I mean, that drought starts to hit you after a while. Yeah, it does. And especially because, you know, one of the things about playing in that facility is that you know you, you you definitely sense the ghosts. I mean, you know what went on there. I mean, you know, I would argue that those Islanders teams were the greatest dynasty in the history of sports, let alone hockey. When you consider the fact that you know, that team won 19 consecutive playoff series, when you think, you know, we just talked before about the nature of hockey series and how high intensity they are. I mean, that number seems impossible, and yet they won 19 consecutive playoff series from you know the first playoff series of their. Uh, of their of their run, you know, right to mid to, to when they finally lost to the Oilers in uh, in '84, and that team is a constant presence there. I mean, you see just as many Trotje and Bossy and Clark Gillies jerseys now, you know, as you do Bavillier and Barzal and Barbalov. And you know, it's, in case you missed it, I mean, there's all those retired numbers, there's all those banners. I mean, you're looking at them every night. So it's a, you know, it's 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 a, it's a 
I think it's, it's it's almost been a millstone for some you know weaker will teams, but I think that's what's great about this team is that they almost embrace that. They they badly want to be included in the you know when when the final history of the Islanders is written, they want to be able to be you know spoken of along the same lines as those four championship teams, and that's what's kind of fun about this group. Yeah, well, four titles in the seventies. Al Arbor was a great coach. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm coaching my daughter's travel soccer team when we lived on Long Island. And before the game, uh, I'm talking to the referee. And he said, uh, do you know who one of the players is on the other team? I said, no. He said, it's Al Arbor's daughter. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay. And? <laughs> so uh, he said, well, you know, they're pretty good. And I said, uh, and this is what the referee's telling me before a game, they're pretty good. <laughs> Uh, uh, we won four to one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It was that was it was definitely the coaching, Howard. Definitely the coaching. I'm well, sorry. And I don't think it was the coaching. I think it was the motivation. I said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> there you go. That's, look, that's all you need sometimes. Yeah. Look, the look, the last championship won by any New York team, as you well know, was the Giants, and that was nine years ago. Uh, Yankees who were struggling last night. And by the way, before I go past the Yankees. They win a game last night uh, in the bottom of the ninth. Luke Voigt uh, was tremendous. Sanchez is the home run in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Chapman blows the save in the top of the ninth inning, okay? But he gets the win. And I'm thinking yeah. that that rule's got to be changed in baseball, doesn't it? Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've thought that since, you know, forever. I mean, it does skew, you know, the number of wins, but you know, wins mean wins are so insignificant in the big picture now, as opposed to how they were viewed even 25 years ago. That I think yes, and in, in the interest of fairness, you know, I mean, in 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 games where starters can go five, and there's multiple pitchers, the official score has this, the discretion to award the wins to the pitcher who pitched the pitch the best. And I think that's that's a quintessential example of, you know, they, you know, if an official scores powers in that regard. We're broadened. I mean, you'd probably pick somebody else. You know, you, you, you know, um, I'm not sure. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be Chapman. It wouldn't be Zach Britton. It wouldn't be <laughs> Michael King necessarily. But uh, you know, Shane Shane Green should have should have gotten the win. He pitched great last night. You know, Look, but uh, that's just kind of not uh, the way things are done now. But but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be sad if that if that was implemented somewhere along the line. You know, baseball actually is that it's coming under a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, with the uh, sticky stuff, the pitchers and. And the joke that some pitchers are making out of it, a guy dropping his pants the other day on the mound for the umpires to get a look. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, Rob Manfred's got a big job in front of him because there's, there's, a mount, there's a credibility question now that I'm looking at Major League Baseball. The game is slow. We know that. And when you see a, a Rodgers Chapman pitch, uh, I could take a nap in between his pitches. And it's frustrating for me to watch, Mike. I'll be honest with you. Uh, look. I'm a Yankee fan as much as any other Yankee fan in New York. But after a while, it gets to a point where you're saying, get on with it already. Yeah, the time was it was just Yankees-Red Sox games that seemed to last literally forever. Um, and now it's a lot of these games. And, yes, a lot of these things that they've implemented, you know, do make it, you know, I mean, replay definitely adds time to the game. Um, this certainly adds time to the game, especially if there's going to be shenanigans attached to it. I mean, I get it. There, there, you know, there was a there was a call to make the game more equitable. It was kind of running away with pitchers taking advantage of the notion that I mean, look, pitchers have always been able to use kind of sticky stuff for the very reason that you know that 
that it's intended to is because they don't want to, they want to at least have an idea where the ball is going. But then it became weaponized, so it became different. And I think that's when you had to make a move similar to this. But, you know, this would kind of be like, you know, when baseball decided to crack down on steroids, if as, you know, the teams came off the field, if one random player was suddenly, you know, asked to, to pee in a cup, <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in front of God and everyone, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's, it just seems so bizarre. It's so different from what other sports do. And it's just, you know, if that's going to be baseball's look right now, it's just a very bad look. Well, what's even more, uh, more glaring is, look, I'm not going to pick on officiating, but I counted at least four times last night where a pitch was so far out of the strike zone and it was called a strike. And I mean, one Aaron Judge, who had a horrible night last night, he struck out four times. But one time, that pitch was so far below his knees, it was not even close. And he was called out on the pitch. And I'm thinking, and, and typical of Judge, you know, he, wouldn't, he didn't make a big deal about it. He walked over to the umpire, he whispered something to him, and then he walked to the dugout. But at some point, we've got to have some kind of a, uh, and I'm trying to think of the word, some kind of a fail-safe system. We talk about replay, making sure everything is correct. Uh, I guess you don't want to get into a situation of questioning or challenging a ball or a strike. Well, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that once the technology is perfected, that you're going to go to automatic balls and strikes on fires. Which you know, I you know, I, I, I wish it didn't have to come to that, but you know, more and more, I mean, especially now that they've implemented the strike zone in most baseball telecasts, I mean, just see how many of these calls the umpires miss, and uh, you know, it's 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 sad to say because I mean, balls and strikes are really the last domain that umpires have any kind of authority. You know, you're still not allowed to argue balls and strikes, uh, at least according to the rules, and uh, you know they. You know, they can they can take their you know, they, they they don't need to be perfect on a call to first base because if it's overturned, well, the video will prove, and there's no consequence if you're wrong. Um, and so, I mean, to me, I mean, it would be a very sad day when balls and strikes are handed over to a robot. But it also seems inevitable because you know whether the job is just harder now than it used to be because of the way pitchers throw. You know, I don't, I don't know if Jack O'Connell necessarily saw. 93 mile an hour sliders in his day, which you know has to be difficult to be able to adjudicate. But whatever, I mean, it's just uh, it's just a shame. But I think that in the interest of getting things right, that's kind of has to be the way it goes. Uh, the Mets are uh, are uh, being hit now with injuries, particularly their pitching staff. Uh, but Jacob Degrom is without question the best pitcher in baseball right now. As a matter of fact, you might even go so far as to say he could be top five pitcher all time. Uh, am I going too far? I want to see it a little, a little longer, but I mean, gosh, his his stats are otherworldly, and his, you know, the electricity in the ballpark when he pitches now is just, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to top. It's just, it's remarkable, and um, you know, so there's, you know, I I definitely think, I mean, look, the way things are going, I I think he'll probably crack, you know, 100 career wins, but you know, if he pitched this way for five, six, seven straight years in a row. And his career ends, and he's at you know 98 wins. I mean, he's probably the first starting pitcher in history to get in with that, to get in the Hall of Fame with that low a total. That's how dominant it is, and that's how dominant most of his modern numbers are—the WHIP and the, you know, the FIP and all the all the other stuff, and certainly the ERA plus, which is just something from another planet. Um, and he ran the regular ERA, which is also something from another planet. Yeah. 
Look, I mean, the Mets have had uh, a, a history of great pitchers, from Doc Gooden to Tom Seaver to Jerry Kuzman. Uh, I mean, you can go down the list. But uh, I remember having a conversation a long time ago with Tim McCarver uh, when he was uh, doing games for NBC. And I asked him about Bob Gibson. And he's, when he would, they were teammates with the Cardinals. He remembers going out to the mound. He calls timeout. He starts walking out to the mound. He's 10 feet from Gibson. And Gibson says, what the blankety blank do you want? <laughs> and McCarver said, I was so intimidated. I said, nothing. <laughs> Turned around. He walked back to home plate. <laughs> well, I think, it's, I think the second half of that story is Gibson said, the only thing you know about pitching is that you can't hit it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great line. But I mean, yeah. Gibson, Gibson. I mean, Gibson struck fear into anybody who stepped in the batter's box. Uh, yeah, I mean, the stories are legendary. And look, you know, what you see now, I think, is almost the Jacob Degrom backlash. You know, look, his innings pitched are, are, are modest. Part of that is because of the modern game. A lot of that is because he's had some injury issues this year. And so people, you know, love to now say, well, you know, when. When Bob Gibson had his 1.12 ERA in 68, I think his, I think his eighth inning ERA was like 0.69, and his ninth inning ERA was like 0.57. And you know, I, I don't, I don't know that Jacob Dragam has thrown a ball yet in the eighth or the ninth inning this year. I don't think he has. Um, but you know what? It's, it's it's okay to separate the two. I mean, Bob Gibson was part of an era where that's what you did. Jacob Dragam is part of an era where this is what you do. I mean, it's not like he's he stands alone. Most. Most pitchers now, or starting pitchers right now, are five and fly. Uh, the, you know, the, the durable ones go seven. Every now and again, you'll get your pitch count low so you can go eight. And every once in a while, you're floating with a no-hitter, so the manager lets you go nine. Uh, but that's just, that, that, that's just the way the rules are now. Whether you like it or not, whether, you know, w- w- whether it was preferable, you know, everybody wants to talk about Bob Gibson who would throw nine innings, but what about, uh, you know, Howard Vaccaro back in the day? who was a terrible pitcher forced to go nine and his ERA was nine and a half, you know, but they didn't want to give the ball to a relief pitcher because the relief, you know, the bullpen was a place where, where, where the bad pitchers live. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know that was a preferable thing to the game either. I mean, sure. It's wonderful when you talk about Gibson and Koufax and Drysdale and Marischal and Seaver and Carlton and all these guys who would go nine, but um, you know, those were also the cream of the crop. And you know what? I mean, the cream of the crop in, 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 in modern baseball pitching they might not go nine every time, but they, you know, they throw 110, 115 pitches when they need to. And sometimes that means going, going eight. And I mean, I, I don't mean to belabor this point more than you probably wanted to, but I remember even talking to Tom Seaver at one point and he was like, you know, he thought it would be the commotion about pitch counts was just wrong. And his point was, look, I mean, back in my day, I had to throw my best stuff to the best, the first, first five, the best five hitters in the lineup, first five hitters in the lineup. Maybe the really good teams, you have to worry about number six too. Ever got seven, eight, nine? I could throw my C game, and I was going to get those guys out. So I didn't care if I struck them out. I didn't care. So I was going to keep my pitch count that way. I was going to throw, you know, to the weak hitting shortstop. I was going to throw a get me over slider that he, you know, ground that effortlessly to six, you know, to the shortstop. He said, you know, people think I threw two hundred pitches every day. I didn't. I just had a different game. Now you have, especially in the American League, you have nine guys who can who can take you out of the park. That's a whole different game from a pitching standpoint too. Uh, I remember, uh, old enough to remember Whitey Ford, who never pitched more than seven innings. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a great pitcher, particularly in the World Series. Uh, so Ford would go seven innings, and Louis Arroyo would come in, go the last two, or the ninth inning, whatever. But that was then, this is now. If you're comparing yesterday with today, 
And today's baseball, the thing, a couple, one thing that continues to bother me is the DH. If one league has it, why doesn't the other? If one league doesn't have it, why doesn't the? You know, I think there has to be some continuity, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think there will be. And I mean, fortunately for people who are, you know, kind of like the way things used to be, I think it's going to be it's going to be a universal DH as soon as next year once the CBA is ratified. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world for the uh, players association because it's an extra job on every team on you know every team in the national league that makes sense i think it's i think it's right for the game look i mean it's not just Jacob the grom who's gotten hurt you know hitting this year i mean every year there's seven eight nine ten pitchers who get hurt running the bases trying to beat out a ground ball and nobody wants that i mean it's bad enough that pitchers go down because their elbows blow out and they have your know, rotator cuff surgery but when they start being vulnerable because they're trying to because they're asked to do something at high speed that they really couldn't even do in a beer league. I mean, that's where it gets kind of out of control. And, and, you know, you could also make the argument, I mean, and I've come around on this because I used to be fiercely pro, you know, anti-DH, but I don't want to see pitchers hit. It's, 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 it's a waste of time. Most of these guys are terrible. And it's just, you know, I, I, I get it. I understand the purity of having everybody hit and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I, I think that we, we, we very quickly get used to the idea of a DH in the National League. I agree. Uh, I agree because uh, people want offense. They want to see. They want to. They're looking for the big ball. They're looking for the big fly. They're looking to see a team score a lot of runs. Look, I mean, yeah, defense is a necessity, but people, fans, want to see offense. It's simple as that. So I, I think that, that that having the DH, I think, would be a good thing. Let me switch gears, Mike, and talk about the two NBA teams in town, and that's the the Nets, uh, who went further than the Knicks, but. There's more buzz about the Knicks, I think, than there is about the Nets. And I don't mean to dis- to denigrate the Nets, but we all know why they're not going to win a championship. It's the injury factor to their superstars. Agreed. And I think you're right about the level of buzz. I mean, I think that, like, I, I think the Nets have an extraordinary national following. I think they have probably more fans in Nevada than they do in New York. Um, you know, New York is a Knicks stronghold, and. It's always look. It's clearly always going to be that. If it's remained that through all the horrible years, the last twenty seasons, it's going to stay that way. And you know, the, the Nets being in Brooklyn isn't going to take Brooklyn fans and make them Knicks fans. Those people have generally been Knicks fans from day one. Maybe they'll be able to attract a younger generation, and maybe that over time will mean something. But but also, you know, no, you're right. I mean, look. I mean, the the, the, the number one thing you could have made this you know concern. And I did a couple of times, you know, as early as when they acquired Harden. You know, the NBA playoffs are a grind. We talked earlier about the NHL playoffs. I mean, you might not be talking about guys who want to fight every game, but the the NBA playoffs are a grind. They're hard to get through. Look at all the players who have been hurt during these playoffs. Uh, it, 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 it's almost an aberration if you can survive. You know, one of the great things about LeBron is until this year, I mean, he, you know, he's really able to answer the bell every single time he had a playoff game he had to play. That's that's just not that's just not done, and uh, you know the, the idea you look know, in the Nets. What makes the Nets special is you have three Hall of Fame players, all playing you know if not the peak of their primes, pretty close to it, and but they're all so little long in the tooth, and to 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 expect those guys to survive through you know possibly twenty eight postseason games, especially when you limit their minutes and you know you load you manage their loads during the season, it's just hard to ask for. I'm not saying that it was inevitable this was going to happen, but it certainly wasn't surprising 
when James Harden's hamstring, you know, tweaked, and it was less surprising when 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 Kyrie went down with the ankle. I mean, Kyrie's an extraordinarily fit basketball player, but sometimes all you got to do is step on somebody else's foot, and you're done. That's what happened. Yeah, I, I thought before the playoffs started, I thought the uh, the Nets were going to play the Lakers in the finals uh, because I couldn't see either one of those teams losing four games in a series. Well, that was pre-Anthony Davis couldn't play. Uh, LeBron wasn't 100%, and we all know the rest of the story about the Nets. But having said all of that, uh, I think there's a – and I'm just looking at this thing objectively for the Nets. Yeah, they've got the big three. Joe Harris didn't show up in the playoffs. He's shooting from three-point range, which – I mean, he led the league this year in three-point shooting. He shot 33% in the playoffs. Not acceptable. But they've got some other issues they're going to have to deal with. I'm not sure that bench is as deep as it needs to be. And I don't know that the Nets, uh, right now, they don't have the rim protector that I think they're going to have to go out and get. Well, put it this way. I mean, whether they do or they don't have enough bench, we really didn't see it because uh, Steve Nash really shortened that bench. I mean, right. guys who were major contributors during the regular season didn't see any run at all during the during the postseason. And, you know, I, I, I don't think he's got a lot of criticism for that, but certainly it would be warranted if there was because, you know, I mean, I, I get it. You want to have your best players on the floor as much as possible. And, you know, absent Kyrie, I think Harden and, and Durant felt like they had to play every minute. But they really didn't. Nobody does. I mean, and there really is a difference between playing 48 minutes or, in the case of the overtime game, 53 minutes, you know, playing 42 minutes. I mean, you know, just giving a guy a two-minute break, you know, in the first half and a three-minute break in the second half, you know, it's, it, it's going to make a big difference. And the only way you can do that is if you trust your bench and uh, – you know, Nash said loud and clear that I'd rather have these these older hobbled players on the floor than, you know, the guys who were contributing all year long, which I thought was a curious choice. Well, you know, it could have been solved. All Durant has to do is wear a half the size shoe smaller. <laughs> you know? Not even that. I think I think somebody measured it was three millimeters, which yeah. is something yeah. uh, that's gonna be hard for Nets fans to live to, to live with for the next couple of months because uh, I mean that would have been just an extraordinary uh, uh, ending to that game and that series. And look, if they survive that series, you know, you give Harden a couple extra days to get better, maybe Kyrie comes back, and then all of a sudden, you know, you can start talking yourself into the nets again. But, uh, yep, you're right. If, unfortunately, instead of a size 14 and a half, he's a size 15, and there you go. Yeah, well, look, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm impressed with this Atlanta Hawks team, to be honest with you. Uh, I watched the way they came out last night, and I'm watching the first half. I mean, they were outplayed, and yet they're only down three at, at the midway point. This Trey Young is is uh, show, he's 22 years old. I don't think he realizes that. I mean, this guy is, he plays like a guy who's been in the league for 15 years. He knows how to play. He knows how to distribute the basketball. And oh, by the way, he can knock him down from deep. 48 points last night. Uh, he got help. He had three players on that Hawks team last night that had double doubles: Capella and Collins, as well as Young. This team, I wouldn't look. Is Milwaukee the better team? Yes, but <laughs> I wouldn't bet against this Hawks team. Not the way they're going. And I'll tell you something, Howard, as it pertains to New York. You know, when the uh, when they came in and you know beat the Knicks a gentleman's sweep in five games, I think there were some people who were quick to say, "Well, maybe the Knicks' you know, regular season wasn't all that." And look, I, I actually picked the Hawks because they were healthy, and you know, I, I you know I, I love Trey Young. I mean, I, I don't want to say I predicted them going to the making it out of the East, but I, it didn't surprise me they beat the Knicks. Maybe it surprised me that they did it in five games. But, you know, the fact that they've now gone on to beat the Sixers, they now have 
stolen home court away from the Bucks. I do think the Bucks are going to come back in that series, but whatever. I mean, I, I, I think certainly the more they win, uh, the better the Knicks actually look in retrospect, that it wasn't just they lost to some schlubby team in the first round of the playoffs. They lost to a team that wasn't only good, but was starting to learn how to win and, and win on the, on the game's biggest stage. Hey, Mike, before I let you go, uh, it's been 48 years since the Knicks won a title. Uh, if it wasn't for that, I mean, I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that the Jets are around, they would have the longest drought. But the Jets haven't won uh, a championship in, what, uh, 50-something years, 53 years? Uh, I like what they've done to this point. I like this uh, this hiring of Robert Sala. I like what I'm hearing about him. Uh, Joe Douglas is still going to be squarely on the hot seat in terms of providing a roster. But it's interesting to note that in their free agent acquisitions and in the draft, they basically acquired players to help their rookie quarterback, Zach Wilson. Which is smart because I think they, they went the other way when it came to Sam Darnold and it you know, certainly ruined Darnold's time with the Jets, if not his entire career. I don't know that Darnold ever would have been confused with you know, Ken Stabler, but uh, I don't think he was helped by the people that were around him, the team that were around him, specifically the skill players and the line that was around him. Uh, so it only makes sense. If, if, if you're going to build around another kid quarterback, give him, a, give him a chance. Give him a fighting chance. And I think that's what the, what the Giants are doing with Daniel Jones, and I think that's clearly what the Jets are doing here. I mean, if, if Zach Wilson fails, it's, it's going to be because Zach Wilson fails. There's, you, it doesn't seem now that there's going to be a lot of mitigating circumstances to explain why and spread the blame around the way, the way, the way, the, the way there was with Darnold. Uh, you got any options to, to go to game one of the NFL season in Carolina when Sam Darnold faces his old team? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure we'll have that conversation sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, that'd be fine by me. I, I, I actually like the barbecue in Charlotte, so yeah. that's, what I, that's, what, that's how I judge my road trips. Is, is, is how, how's it going to help me have a good dinner? So. Uh, you're right, and, and downtown Charlotte has been rejuvenated. It's really beautiful down there now. It's an underrated town. I agree with that. Yep. Hey, Mike, always enjoy talking to you. And most importantly, you stay safe. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. He's Mike Vaccaro helping me take a bite of the Big Apple with his assessment of what's going on in New York in terms of the, the wealth of teams, obviously, and, and the excitement there is every day. Let's be real. Uh, the Yankees are not playing as well as they should. Uh, the Mets are playing okay. I mean, they're in first place in the NL East. But we'll see how it all shakes out. We'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, It's going to be interesting, but uh, the NBA season before this year was basically a dud. Nobody, you know, the Knicks were bad. They weren't bad. They were worse than bad. What's worse than bad? Atrocious? Could be. Could be. Hello. Time to talk to Bill Orham of The Athletic. Hello, Bill. Hello. How are you, Howard? I can't complain. Um, uh, you uh, you spent a lot of time covering the uh, the teams that occupy the Staples Center. Uh, Clippers are still very, uh, still in the playoffs. Lakers are not. Let me deal with the Lakers first, uh, and you're closer to it than I. So I'm looking for your expert opinion. I said before the playoffs started that I thought the Lakers would play the Nets in the championship. Uh, obviously, there were mitigating circumstances. Certainly, Anthony Davis's inability to play. LeBron James was in and out, not 100%. Uh, they didn't get production from certain areas. But as you're looking at this Laker team now, uh, and most people are talking out there, that they could be a major overhaul with that roster. What do you know? 
mean, it, it really comes a question of how much flexibility they have because they're they're so far over the over the um, the cap that you get into questions of yes, you would love to upgrade the roster, you would love to see some improvements, but you know you don't have a lot of flexibility to go sign other free agents. So Dennis Schroeder, for example, was really uh, flopped down the stretch, did not have you know, the second half of the season that you would have looked for for him. Um, obviously, he was out with the health and safety protocols. Is he a $20 million a year player? Probably not, based on what we saw at the end of the year. But at the same time, you can't go sign a $20 million point guard unless it's Dennis Schroeder. So there might be some incentive to try to keep this group together and then make improvements next year, whether it's um, you know at the trade deadline or, again, on the buyout market, and, and hope that that continuity ends up uh, paying off. Now, you know, like you said, Kyle Kuzma, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Dennis Schroeder, those guys did not, you know, have the have the playoffs that they would have needed to have, you would think, for the Lakers to have advanced. Um, Montrez Harrell was obviously not a $9 million player for the Lakers if he's not in the rotation in the playoffs. You really can't justify that signing, and he has a player option. So I do think that there's going to be some efforts to um, upgrade a lot of those positions, but the, the real problem is going to be what the Lakers are even able to do um, because the only guys they can really sign are their own players. And so with the exception of, you know, the exception, the exception of the exception, uh, the taxpayer exception that they will have around $7 million and, um, you know, and, and minimum contracts. And so I don't think they have a ton of options, but I do think they'll be looking to make changes because the reality is, you know, Frank, Rob Palenka was ultra aggressive after the Lakers won the championship where you saw, you know, he was willing to let Dwight Howard and Rajon Rondo and JaVale McGee all go in the name of, you know, giving the roster a refresh. And I, and I wrote this the other day, but if you are, if you're not going to, if, you, if you're not going to run it back after winning a championship, then how could you possibly justify running it back after that debacle? Um, but that said, you know, all the Lakers, you know, came out of that series saying they felt like, you know, the injuries had done them in and they felt like they were a championship team if they you know, had a normal season and been able to avoid the injuries. So there was a lot of um, interest, at least internally, I think, at least in the locker room in, uh, in trying to keep the bulk of this group together. But the question is, you know, I mean, who's going to come back on a minimum contract? Who's going to take, you know, keep taking pay cuts? Because it's a lot easier to take a pay cut if you are Marquise Morris, say, last year to play that 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 um, smaller role because you're coming off of a championship and that got you a cha- that got you your first championship ring the year before is Marquise Morris assuming there's a market for him just as an example going to be interested in coming back on a minimum deal yet again when it wasn't a championship result and he didn't get the he didn't get the payoff of what you know the um, of 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 of, come, of of making that sacrifice Bill let's take a walk across the hall at the Staples Center to where the Clippers reside uh, they're in familiar territory. They were down 0-2 to Dallas, came back and won. They were down 0-2 to Utah, came back and won. Now they're oh, down 0-2. But it, it's not. this is a different 0-2, uh, and it may sound like, uh, like I'm picking here. But the game the other night, you got your best player on the foul line with a chance to give you a three-point lead. And not only does he miss one, but he misses both foul shots to set up the winning alley-oop pass to Eiton who wins the game with a dunk. Uh, I mean, I've had my questions about Paul George, but you got a major moment there to do something, and he he just failed. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I have to feel bad for Paul George. Like, I watched that moment 
and you know this is a player we know who kind of carries the label of being a you know a playoff um, choker. And it was you know you make one of two there, and it's a completely different situation. Um, and the fact that he missed both, I actually I actually felt bad for the guy because we know he's a good a good foul line shooter, a good free throw shooter. Um, but I mean, it really just reinforced the narrative of the Clippers curse. And I, I don't believe in that actually, but this is a franchise that just went in big moments for whatever reason, can't get out of its own way. And you, and you saw that they had that game one, I think you have to say, but also, I mean, credit to the Suns. I mean, it, it was funny because I saw that when they had the, the nine tenths left on the clock or whatever for the inbound. I thought about that play that Jay Triano had run with Tyson Chandler a few years earlier. Hmm. Like I, I, I remember that that was the first thing I thought of before they even inbounded the ball. That that was something that had worked, and I thought some irony once it happened that it was it was the Suns, but with totally different personnel and a different coach, like really in a different era and a different time, and you know essentially the same the same strategy worked. Um, and you know I mean the execution on that play was just incredible. I mean. Jay Crowder's within six inches or less, probably less than six inches of just throwing it off the corner of the backboard. And if he does that, you know, we're talking about a tied series going to game three in Los Angeles. And I don't think anybody is, you know, sweating those Paul George missed free throws. So it's two things. I mean, it was obviously the Clippers created the situation and Paul George, um, you know, could have more or less iced the game or at the very least would have you know, taken that second opportunity out of play uh, by putting the, the, the Clippers up three. But then also, my goodness, I mean, just what a, what an incredible execution in a in a really high pressure moment for the um, for the uh, for the Suns. Bill Oram of the Athletic. Uh, look, I I, I I hate the discussion about coaches' jobs and so on, but reality is what reality is. Last year, Doc Rivers was held accountable. Uh, is it unfair to hold Ty Lue accountable if they get if they get beat, say, four zero in the series? I don't know if we can say that because I mean. This is like most teams. The Clippers are dealing with significant injuries. I mean, Kawhi Leonard's season appears to be over, right? And they they came back from two down in those other two series with a healthy Kawhi. You know, asking them to do it now with no Kawhi Leonard when you know Terrence Mann is having to play those minutes, and Terrence Mann was amazing in the second in the second round. Don't get me wrong, but I just I just feel like you have to give. Um, you have you have to you have to have like some awareness of the of the set of circumstances, and also. You know, Ty Lue is in the first year of building his program. It is very rare that you would see a coach get, um, get, uh, you know, held held accountable for a playoff loss in the in the first year like this. Especially when you know, I would say, I mean, listen, he has gotten the Clippers to their first conference finals in franchise history. That is an achievement. Now, I think you could say in this year, when you look at the remaining teams, if the Clippers were healthy, they should be the favorites. I think at this point. If we'd said going in, if we'd said going into the playoffs, the final four teams were going to be Atlanta, Milwaukee, the Clippers, and Phoenix. You would have you would have probably taken the Clippers to win it all. But they don't have their they don't have their full team. They don't have their best player. And so I think that you know Ty Lue has done a good job of of, of getting the Clippers in this position. Um, you know the you know there are probably some things you could quibble with over the course of the regular season, including them you know kind of intentionally falling into the the four spot to avoid the Lakers. Um, and making things tougher on themselves, I would argue, uh, in the playoffs. But, you know, I think Ty Lue has done a good job for year one, all things considered. And, again, you just can't remove the circumstances, which are um, the injuries that all teams are dealing with. It's interesting to note that neither number one seeds are still around. Utah's out. Philadelphia's out. Uh, Which is more of a surprise to you? Uh, That Utah is out to 
me is it, it, well i mean that's interesting i'm actually not i'm not that surprised either number one seed is out i think it's more interesting that really none of the with the exception of the, i guess the clippers and the bucks sort of None of our champ, like preseason or like kind of regular season championship favorites are still in. I think the fact that Brooklyn is out and the, the Lakers didn't advance. I mean, those are the ones that really, um, yeah, I did not see coming. I I did not see the the Clippers and or excuse me, the Lakers and Bucks being done before the conference finals. I suppose um, I I I thought the Jazz were gonna were gonna beat the Clippers. I, I thought that before they went up 2-0. I thought the Jazz were a better team, and I still think they probably should have won that series. I mean, they had you know pr- a couple of pretty um, terrible collapses in second halves um especially once Kawhi went out I, so I, I think you know considering the circumstances considering that the the jazz um you know got Kawhi Leonard uh, or got the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard and weren't able to close the deal I mean that's pretty surprising but then again you know the, the Sixers were knocked out by a team that nobody saw coming nobody saw the Atlanta Hawks coming and I, I think I picked the Knicks in the first round so I mean that just tells you what I know so I mean I think it's more surprising the, the Hawks are there but maybe more surprising that the Jazz aren't, if that makes sense. Hey, Bill, I'll tell you this. Before the Knicks series for the Hawks, a lot of the friends of mine saying, oh, the Knicks are going to wrap them up, they're going to beat them. I said, you guys have been drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, yeah, Thibodeau did a fabulous job. They won 41 games when they were projected to win 25. He deserves yep. Coach of the Year. I give him all the credit in the world. But the one thing that's consistent with Nick fans is that they overestimate who this team has been and is right now. Yeah, they took a giant step by making the playoffs for the first time in eight years. But when I looked at that Hawks team, I said, nobody's given them any credit. I didn't think there was any question in my mind that the Hawks were going to win that series. Now, going forward to Philadelphia, and you know, a lot of people are saying, well, Philadelphia fell apart. They didn't, they're not, nobody's still giving Atlanta credit. And after what I saw last night in Milwaukee, I mean, they were totally outplayed in the first half, and they're only down three. And yeah. then the, and then the fourth quarter, uh, somebody l- l- let the dogs out by the name of Trey Young, who scores 17 fourth-quarter points. Bill, not only the points, I mean, the assists that he had and the plays yeah. that he made. I mean, he, to me, he's he's becoming legendary. Well, and listen, I don't, I don't think I'm alone here. I've watched more Hawks basketball in the last— two weeks than I did all season. And I think that, you know, I mean, and I think John Collins said something along those lines last night. I mean, people are just starting to see us for the first time this season. And, you know, I, you know, I do this for a living, Howard, and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, you know? I mean, I might, I might have tuned into a fourth quarter to watch Trey Young on League Pass or something like that a few times, but I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't watching the Hawks. I mean, they fired their coach mid-season. I mean, they felt like a team that was, you know, lucky to be in the playoffs to me. And I was, and I will, happily own that I was not paying close attention to them and they caught me by surprise mm. and you know and and so I mean I full credit to them for you know keeping their heads down improving as the season went along building an identity under Nate McMillan who's done a tremendous job you know pushing the right buttons making the right personnel moves um, you know I mean you know, with, you know when they unloaded Rajon Rondo I was like well you know there's another example that this is a team just you know kind of you know, selling itself off for parts. And the reality is, you know, they just got, they just were building an identity that fit better their personnel and their young stars. And I mean, John Collins to me is a, is a star. Um, you know, the veterans around, around them fit really well. I mean, Solomon Hill, you know, it's funny, like Solomon Hill is playing the entire fourth quarter last night. And that's a guy that you don't think of as being, you know, an impact player in the NBA anymore. And yet, you know, he has a role there. And, um, and so I feel like, you know, the Hawks do deserve a ton of credit for what they've built and how they've built it. 
and you know a testament to building things from the ground up which i always love to see and um from and of you know improving over the course of a season because nobody was talking about the hawks as being anywhere near the conference a conference finals type contender or eastern conference championship type contender uh before this season it didn't exist bill arm of the athletic no you're right uh how often do you see three guys on the same team have double doubles that happened last night collins capella and young uh all had double doubles but uh, look, I, I think how silly and well, I'll take it even a step further. This morning it was announced that Rick Carlisle is going to be the new head coach of the Indiana Pacers. Here the Pacers fired McMillan. Then they fired his successor after less than a year. Look, I'm a big Rick Carlisle guy. I think he's one of the top coaches in the history of this league. He did a great job in Dallas. And obviously there was something going on between he and Luka Doncic and the player always wins. So Carlisle I don't know if he was going to get fired. He decided it was his decision to step away. Uh, he's going to make the Pacers a better team. I guarantee it. No, I agree with you. And obviously, there's familiarity there. He was there, you know, decade and a half ago. Spent a lot of years in Indiana. So, I mean, I think that there's that, that was kind of a natural fit um, when you were kind of surveying the landscape. But also, you know, there's good players in Indiana. And that team obviously underperformed. And they've got to figure some stuff out, you know, with um, – maybe the direction they go in the front court, if they need to sort something out with Miles Turner, whatever. But, I mean, there are really good players there with, um, with Brogdon and, um, and, and Levert. And I just, I just think that, you know, Rick Carlisle is taking over a situation where he can build. And, you know, players who are going to listen to him. And I, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff happening in, in Dallas. You know, our, um, my colleagues at The Athletic, you know, kind of lifted the, lifted the lid on, on a, lot, a lot of those factors and they're you know figuring a lot out with their executive uh, situation it seems like so um you know rick carl may be smart to get out of there and um and and find a situation where he can where he can build something and i i think it's a really i agree with you i think he's one of the the best the best coaches in the nba and that was a team that just really you know severely underachieved last year and i think you're going to give rick carlisle a team with a lot of talent and they become very interesting in the Eastern Conference very quickly. I sat when I was broadcasting New Jersey Nets basketball when Chuck Daly was there. And my broadcast position was alongside the bench. So I heard a lot of the conversation during the timeouts. Daly would invariably look at Carlisle and say, what do you got? Whether it was an offensive play or a defensive play, he trusted him implicitly. And, and I asked Daly, I used to do a pregame show with Chuck before every game. Before I turned the, the uh, tape recorder on, I said, you got a lot of confidence in Carlisle, don't you? He goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> he said, they, they don't need me. Just leave him there. <laughs> but that was Chuck. You know, Chuck was, was like yeah. that. So now he had, the job is going to be filled in Indiana. The job is filled in Boston with Yudoka, the assistant with, uh, with Brooklyn. Um, I asked some people in, in Boston who, this is before Carlisle got hired in Indiana, would they bring Rick Carlisle back? And the word I got from a lot of people was they were going to hire a black coach, period. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had not done any reporting on that, and I, so I don't, I don't know what they were necessarily looking for. But, I mean, Ime Udoka is a guy who people have talked about as, as deserving an opportunity for so long. Um, you know, when you look at kind of his pedigree where he has come up through the Spurs system, um, learning from Coach Pop, obviously there's a, a huge amount of um, – pedigree there you know a lot of teams are looking for the next you know uh piece of the spurs tree that you can plant and then and then two i mean you know goes to philadelphia uh, works with brett brown there has 
you know, um, they have some success, you know, works with young stars, um, you know, has the ear of the star of the young stars in Philadelphia, and then, you know, gets to be part of the, uh, the Brooklyn system. Um, I mean, it's just a, a great pedigree. And, and, you know, we talk about diversity in, in the coaching ranks all the time. It's, uh, it's obviously out of, a, it's out of, um, it's out of alignment with uh, the, the, um, it, it, with, with the amount of uh, black players. So um, I, I think for uh, a lot of people around the league, I mean, it's, it's great to see your minority candidates getting those opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, I think you'll, you'll keep seeing it in, in, other, in other places. I mean, I think in Dallas, there's, there's going to be um, several minority candidates, including probably Jason Kidd, who we saw Rick Carlisle was pushing for. Chauncey Phillips is probably one of the hottest coaches uh, around the league. Or excuse me, one of the coaching the, the hottest coaching candidates around the league. Like he could end up in Portland or somewhere else. I mean, it just seems like you know that's kind of going to be a done deal. Him getting a job somewhere. So um, I think it's something you're going to keep seeing, and it's you know it was a much bigger part of the conversation last offseason, of course, when the Nets hired Steve Nash, uh, kind of as the first shoe to drop in the in the um, in the coaching carousel. But that's always going to be a part of it, and you know I think you know for a lot of people around the league, I mean, you want to see that number. You can't have a ninety percent. Um, you know, black league, and then you know, three, four um, African American head coaches in the league. So, um, Ime Udoka, though, um, certainly got that job on on his uh, you know on his ped- on his coaching pedigree and acumen and, and a reputation as somebody who's been deserving that for a long time. He's got somewhat of a relationship with Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown too, which doesn't hurt. Right from the from the Team USA stuff, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's and then and, and that's where and listen, players have so much. Um, I'm not going to say control or power, but, you know, players have, have taken so much um, ownership of their own careers that if you are, a, if you, if you run an NBA team, you want your players invested in what you're doing. You want your players on board with the big decisions you're making. And so if that makes perfect sense and, and you know, it's, it's, you know, as good of a job as I think Brad Stevens did as a coach there and, you know, everything else, I mean, letting, you know, he obviously predated, you know, this current um, iteration of, of Celtics stars. And I think giving them some ownership over the direction of the franchise um, is really smart because you don't want to see them, you know, if, if things d- go sideways or don't get better, um, you know, exerting their uh, leverage and packing up and heading for greener pasture. But there are no greener pastures than Boston, of course, but, um, you know, moving, moving on uh, at some point in the future, you want them to feel invested in what in the, in the direction of the franchise. Hey, Bill, I, I thought it'd be ironic if Chauncey Billups was hired in Boston only because Rick Pitino traded him. In his oh, yeah. rookie year, uh, for Kenny Anderson and Tony Batie, uh, I, I thought then that that was a, a silly trade because I thought Billups' upside was was tremendous uh, to the point of where uh, Rick's son Richard, who, who's been coaching, uh, right. he was a 15 year old kid at the time. He said, "Dad, are you going to trade Chauncey Billups?" He goes, "I don't know why." He said, "Because if you trade him, I'm leaving home." And and Rick looked at his wife Joanne. He said, "Can we still have more kids?" So, I mean, that's a true story because Rick told me. Uh, look, I think Chauncey Billups has got a very good chance to get a job now. Does he get the Orlando job, the New Orleans job, the Dallas job, the Portland job, the Washington job? I mean, those are all up for grabs. But I guarantee you, and you know this, Bill, Zion Williamson is going to have a say in who the next coach is for the Pelicans. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same thing we were just talking about with the Celtics. I mean, you don't want to end up in another situation. Where I mean, there was there there was some chatter, you know, again uh, that the Athletic reported about about Zion Williamson, you know, not being totally happy in New Orleans, and we've seen this, you know, song and dance before with Anthony Davis, and and I think if you are the Pelicans, you've got to get your shit right so that he 
is going to be happy and invested in, in everything you are doing. And that starts with having a coach that, that, you know, he and his, you know, whoever his handlers or, you know, whoever's in his ear, that they believe that there is a long-term fit with whoever that coach is. And there's going to be, it's, it's a hugely important hire because you can't go into a situation like you did last year where you hire a coach who, you, who doesn't work out and you're looking for a replacement a year later. I mean, Stan Van Gundy, I think we all thought that was going to work, and it just clearly hasn't. It obviously didn't. So I, th- I think that, um, you know, it's it's a player's league, Howard, and there is very rarely going to be a, a hire that is made without a star player's um, involvement anymore. And, you know, we've, we've heard, you know, in L.A. where I am, you know, we've heard Rob Palika talk about this where he consults Anthony Davis and LeBron James as partners when it comes to the roster and everything else. And um, I don't think you heard GMs speak as openly about that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe with the really high end stars like the Kobe's, the Michaels, but not every organization was operating that way. Cause not every organization had players that they wanted to give that much power to, but now players have so much power and can so easily force their way into different situations that you have to have their buy-in in what you are doing. And so, um, you know, it's the same in Portland where, you know, obviously there's a lot of question about whether Damian Lillard is going to eventually change his tune about staying in Portland. You've got to get this higher right. You've got to get a coach in there that he believes in. And, we, you know, he told, you know, my colleague Jason Quick, he said, I like Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billups. Well, Jason Kidd took himself out of the running. So, I mean, that puts a lot of pressure to either hire Chauncey Billups or um, convince him that someone else is a better candidate. That either, you know, some of these other people, we know Becky Hammond is interviewed there a couple of times. That Dan, or excuse me, not Dan D'Antoni. Dan D'Antoni is happy in, at Marshall, but Mike D'Antoni yeah. um, has interviewed a couple of times. If, you know, you've got to convince Damian Lillard that if you're not getting the guy he has publicly vouched for in Chauncey Billups, that there's a really good reason and that you're getting him someone better. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I let you go, Bill, look, we've got, I can't see any way that the Clippers can hold uh, hold themselves uh, aloft without Kawhi Leonard. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I mean, you know, the game the other night was close. That being said, uh, I still think that, that that Phoenix comes out of the West. But the East is, look, nobody b- still believes the Hawks. I mean, yeah, they won the game. And if you don't think Milwaukee is coming out in game two feeling some pressure uh, and, and uh, the coach is feeling some pressure, let's face it, uh, the knuckles get a little tighter uh, you, you you lace your sneakers up a little tighter, but it, it's a must win for Milwaukee, obviously, because no longer does Atlanta have no home court advantage. They do. That crowd's alive now where it wasn't years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. I mean, I, I remember for years going to Atlanta with the Lakers and it was a ghost town to go into that building. There weren't there weren't that many fans and the fans who were there were cheering for the Lakers. Uh, you know, it just wasn't a great there wasn't a great amount of support in the arena and obviously that is changing, but I mean, I'm not, I'm trying not to overreact too much to a game one result. I mean, I thought the Hawks looked great last night. Um, but you, you know, the Bucks had a chance to tie the game late. Um, it was a close game could have gone the other way. Um, and you know, you know, LeBron James always talks about game one being a feel out game. And I want, I, I just think we're going to learn a lot about the Bucks. If the Bucks, you know, learn from game one, they figure some things out. Um, you know, we've seen, I mean, we remember the, the Sixers winning game one against the Lakers in, in 2001. I mean, it doesn't end that it's, it ends in five. I mean, coming into this series, the Bucks on paper and you know, to the eye are, are more seasoned. 
They probably have more talent. They are, um, you know, they have more cohesion and continuity. They've been in these situations before. Um, so you would, you would take the Bucks, And I think I would still take the Bucks. But there is something about this Hawks team that where there is a, such a swagger and so much belief that if you don't even this series in game two and kind of get things back to even, it could spiral real quickly. And then you've got all sorts of questions about the Bucks, you know, from, you know, the coaching staff to the stars, really um, all the way down. It gets pretty dicey pretty quick. But I, I do think that, you know, the Hawks have, have been a, a tremendous delight and surprise up to this point. But um, I'm, I'm not yet ready to anoint them the Eastern Conference champions. No, I would agree. I, I don't think I'm overreacting. I just, I was impressed with this Hawks team. They, they didn't play well in the first half, yet they're down three. Uh, and then, and yep. then, and I believe in the fourth quarter they were down seven or eight points at one point, uh, and they just they just don't give up. They just have no quit in them. And to, to me, that that's more about uh, self discipline. And Trey Young's twenty two years old. I don't think he realizes he's only twenty two years old. He plays. He's the modern day Reggie Miller. He loves the attention of getting booed by the opposing re- the opposing arena. Sure. Yeah. No. He's and I, I think again this kind of goes to. The fact that I don't think a lot of people were watching the Hawks in the regular season, um, I think a lot of people are getting to know Trey Young better now than they ever did before. And unless unless he's playing, you know, unless your team is on the other side, unless you're a Bucks fan right now, he's great to watch. You've got to love watching Trey Young because he's 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 a great uh, he's just a great NBA personality for the, all the reasons you're talking about. He is um, unafraid of the big moment. He doesn't care if you don't like him. He he actually feeds off it if you don't like him, and he is he's willing to go in and ru- he wants to go ruin your night. Like he wants to, if you are an opposing player or an opposing fan, he wants to he wants to he wants to score and 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 make shots until it makes you cry. And you know he's done it throughout these playoffs, and it's been it's been really fun to watch. Yeah, it is, and it's it, it sets up for you know still a lot more excitement remaining in the NBA playoffs. Bill, thank you. Always appreciate your insight. You stay safe. Thank you, Howard. You too. Bill Orem of The Athletic. Can you imagine Phoenix playing Atlanta in championship round? It's not that ridiculous. Realistically, it's probably going to be Phoenix and Milwaukee, but, you know, we'll see. I'm Howard David. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live, and you folks stay safe. Thanks. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube